2: Kids, pets, and other wildlife sounds from invading our respective bunkers. So, Rick, I have a question for you. Are you part of Antifa?
1: I'm clearly part of Antifa because I don't like extra-legal, extrajudicial people snatching folks off the streets of any city and not having a warrant or probable cause or, or actually the power to actually arrest them under state and local laws. You know, call me crazy, but Bill Barr, Interior Minister Bill Barr's shock <laughs> troops, we're told now that DHS acting temporarily Provisional short term, <laughs> maybe came from a temp agency secretary Chad Wolf. They'll be spreading across the country now.
2: Oh, really? Mm-hmm. That's kind of terrifying.
1: Well, it is kind of terrifying, and I'm fascinated by the fact that Trump conservatism has decided that the hill they want to die on is defending secret police. Secret police. It's truly amazing. So, yeah, the message of the day for the Trump <clears throat> campaign, and I kid you not when I tell you it came from the Trump campaign, (laughs) all the little Fox, the Sturmbart crew, OAN, and all the rest of them, that Lincoln Project is Antifa, Rick Wilson is Antifa. Well, you know what? I admit it. I like fascists to end up the old-fashioned way. Oh, Jesus. Yeah,
2: I don't think that's going in
1: there. Since the censorship at Big Beast won't let me say what I really mean about fascists, (laughs) I will simply say they need to end up in a variety of severe... Legally constituted proceedings that end with appropriate punishment for their horrible actions against humanity. But no, it's um, it got really ugly there there this weekend.
2: So basically, what's happened is that Bill Barr has dispatched this police force. Nobody knows what it is. It's basically what they did in D.C. during the protests.
1: Right. And essentially, as the interior minister, what he has done is said, "Um, I don't like graffiti and fireworks.
2: They're very upset about the graffiti. The
1: the graffiti really upsets them. Graffiti and fireworks. And so we're going to dispatch people who do not have badges on, who do not have name tags on, who do not have unit identifying patches on their on their tactical Tommy uniforms, and they're going to go out and they're going to engage in riot control, which this weekend also ended up with them beating and breaking the hand of a Naval Academy former U.S. Navy veteran who walked out and asked them to please remember their constitutional oath and so they beat the shit out of the guy, broke his hand, sprayed him with pepper spray in the face at point blank, and this morning, this became a part of the Trump campaign world's you know masturbatory police state fantasy that they really 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 can't wait for the libtard fascist Antifa to uh, be rounded up by Bill Barr's troops it's-
2: I'm is interested in the idea that they've decided that the pandemic, which is killing thousands of Americans every day, is not their jurisdiction, but jailing people for graffiti is.
1: This is a sign of the Trump campaign being out of airspeed, altitude, and ideas, as we say in aviation. But their campaign is struggling right now to make this election about something other than 145,000 dead Americans and something other than the fact that Donald Trump's, you you know, economic leadership. You know, last month, 32% of Americans could not pay their rent or mortgage.
2: Yeah, we have 11% unemployment.
1: And and right now, Mitch McConnell is saying, my God, if we give them another $600 a month, they might lay on their couches and watch Netflix all day, where the country is about to go down the goddamn economic tilt-a-whirl of doom.
2: Yeah, it's just fascinating. There's no testing. There's no tracing. There's no federal government for any of that. But there is federal government to go to Portland, who does not want them, right? But the Trump administration has decided that this is the only way to control the 11 people there who are graffiti.
1: You go back through history and you find these people who were the last, who were the dead enders, you know, who were the the last guys to protect, you know, Marcos in the Philippines or
2: Mussolini.
1: Well, or, well, or Mussolini or the Ceausescus. Pinochet. But these guys that are out in the streets, the people that sent them there, they will be before Congress and it won't be president Trump protecting them. These guys that are in the streets who are engaging in this behavior that they know violates the law and their oath of office and their oath to the Constitution because a lot of them are federal employees, they're not going to get away with this without accountability at the end of the day. They will be revealed who they are, Who the people ordering this and running this, it will come forward. And and while Attorney General and Interior Minister Bill Barr may be at the head of this particularly shitty operation, the people down the chain are going to be held accountable too. They will face legal scrutiny when this is done. Well,
2: I don't Hate that. Big exciting news as people continue to die. The President of the United States has decided.
1: What has he decided? Drum
2: roll. He's going to bring back the crowd freezer. To end all crowd, pleaser Sarah, H- Sarah <laughs> Huckabee Dow Sanders? The killer, the melodious voice of young Sarah Huckabee serenading us. The Daily Briefings are coming back.
1: Whoop, whoop! That's amazing!
2: Because the summer was feeling a little bit slow.
1: So, so let's remember, President Dollhands, when he started the Daily Briefings, his approval number on COVID was a net positive. Right. Now, it is a gigantic... Gigantic twenty-seven or twenty-nine point deficit in the ABC poll of handling of COVID, and this is what a fucking junkie this guy is.
2: Well, he knows he can't do rallies. He can't right? do the rallies.
1: He can't go out and he can't go out and do the rallies. Yeah, eventually golfing with Lindsey Graham gets dull. Ball right. goes into the rough. Of Trump points fetch, and Lindsey never even resists <laughs> it. Okay. <laughs> But that's amazing. I can't wait. You know why? Because right. I think the press conferences, the reason he stopped doing them was it eventually reached the point where even his own people, even the even the, the, the dead enders was like, okay, listen, um, sir, we love you, sir. And we have tears in our eyes, sir. But the libtard, shill, rhino, cuck media, they're distorting your beautiful message every day. We have to stop. And eventually he got the message that they weren't working for him. But this is how much of a junkie he is for the camera right i mean the most dangerous place in the universe is between a live tv camera and donald trump and that's why he is going to come back and start him up again that's amazing i love it we get to mock him so much it's so much more mockery material
2: (laughs) you may have heard of mary trump she's the niece of the President of the United States. She's the author of the record-breaking, best-selling book, Too Much and Never Enough. And we're delighted to have her here today to talk with us. Also joining us will be Lachlan Cartwright of The Daily Beast. All right, so how do you grow up in a family like that and end up a liberal, smart,
3: normal person? It's pretty simple, actually. The fact that I grew up in Jamaica, Queens is one of the two best things that ever happened to me. The second best thing has nothing to do with your question, but growing up in Jamaica... Where, you know, I think when I was a kid, it was like 70% black and the rest white, and it was segregated by Highland Avenue. But I took the subway to school. So all the shops, or not all of them, but most of the shops were owned by black people, and most of the people working in them were black, and it was just normal. And then I'd go to the house and I'd hear what they were saying. And I went to school in Forest Hills and I'd hear what my friends' parents were saying. Like my friends were barely allowed to come to Jamaica because of the blacks, but said in a whisper. So it was that simple. It was experience. Like all the people in my life who've hurt me are white. I've never understood the generalization. I never understood the demonization, I, I'm so happy and grateful that I grew up in Jamaica because it's what grounded me.
1: This entire series of events, can you just briefly give us the 30,000 foot view of the gigantic fucking fraud that is the Trump actions that they took toward you and the way that the the reason this whole challenge to them has emerged because of the way they treated you? Can you just give us like the 30,000 foot view of the fraud they tried to commit on you? It
3: started actually when my dad died. Well, it probably started before that, but because my my grandfather and Donald were my dad's executors, apparently. <laughs> but certain things got undervalued then so they could save in taxes. And there's no way for me to know if I benefited from that or not, although I have my suspicions. In the 90s, probably the engine driving the fraud was the shell corporation of all county. And it was just this absolutely breathtaking piece of I'm sorry, I lost my word. Uh, it In its simplicity in some ways and in its brazenness, they create this fake company, they start pretending that it's a management company and they use it to buy supplies that they then sell to my grandfather's company at a huge markup and then keep the cash. So this middleman thing, and it was, I don't think we can underestimate just how much money was involved in that. So by siphoning off the value of all of my grandfather's properties, some of which I had a share in, they devalued everything my brother and I owned, which is exactly what you want your aunts and uncles to do after your dad dies. (laughs) I I mean,
1: obviously...
3: So I guess that's what being a trustee in the Trump family means.
1: When I read the book, I noticed the arc of Fred throughout your whole family. This sort of supervillain origin story of Donald Trump obviously runs through Fred. It's clear to me, at least, that he's emulating Fred in the whole PR trickery thing and all of his like showmanship and all this bullshit. But how much of Fred do you see in his like incompetence of handling things like corona and the delusions he has about the world and everything else? Yeah,
3: well, honestly, that's one of our problems is... Is that Donald actually isn't anything Fred in some ways. My grandfather was quite competent. He ran a very successful business. I mean, granted, he was uh, shady and unethical. But, you know, I mean, he was much better at those things than Donald is. Too, <laughs> so... I think that my grandfather wouldn't have cared about the people, but he would have like probably handled the connecting the dots and making sure things were in place that would help solve the problem. So where Donald is like my grandfather and actually exceeded my grandfather was in the manipulation of the media and the hyperbolic self-regard. So and that you know that's why my grandfather found him useful.
1: Your phrase you just used the hyperbolic self-regard is just so beautiful because. Because again, reading through it, it's like obvious that Fred had a perfectly high sense of his own self-worth, mm-hmm. but may have been amoral, but he was successful. I, I wonder when you described how Fred was in decline and Donald's contempt for him rose. Was there like an inflection point Donald could have shaken it all off at that point or was it too late by that?
3: I think it's been too late for a very, very long time. I would say that the turn, the point of no return was, I mean, if not earlier, but certainly when he met Roy Cohn.
1: Touch Roy Cohn and, it's, and evil will follow you for all of your days.
3: That's the second volume of your book. Everything Roy Cohn does dies.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> So, one of the big things that made a lot of news about the book was you said that you had heard him say, and you've said this in some other interviews, that you heard very direct and racist and anti Semitic talk from the family, uh, Donald in- included. Would it shock people the degree to which that's, that he has done that?
3: If it's shocking people, they're really not paying attention. <laughs> <laughs> I'm beginning to understand like how these things work. It starts with the sensational stuff. And if we can get past that, then people are gonna dive in deeper, which is what you guys are doing. But between the SAT thing and the racist thing, that seems so clear to me. And I said this the other day, you know, what really, what should concern us is that he's acting racist, not what he said, what he says in private conversation.
1: It's the actual racism that's up front and center right now that we should be really paying attention
4: to.
5: Exactly. In the acknowledgements of the book, Mary, you, you thank your aunt, Mary Ann, for quote, all your enlightening information. You thank her even though you and your brother sued her and Donald and Robert in 2000 after being stiffed over your inheritance. What's your view of your aunt now?
3: Family is, as you all know, a very complicated thing. And when Marianne sort of offered an olive branch after my cousin Ivanka's wedding. I don't even know why I was invited to that wedding. I hadn't spoken to any of them since I think the last time I'd seen them was during their depositions. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely no idea why I was invited. It amounted to absolutely nothing with Donald, Robert, and Elizabeth. But Marianne felt it was very important that we talk about the elephant in the room. and And I assumed she meant the lawsuit. So we met and And we started the slow process of talking it out. And I realized very early on that she meant make it clear to us that we were horrible for doing what we did and causing the debacle, which was her term of art. And it was really interesting because she acted as if the lawsuit had preceded the disinheritance. <laughs> That's very Trumpy, though, isn't it? So them. Yeah. We can't say Trumpy, though, because that was my cat. i <laughs> I'm sorry.
2: Well, and also you are a Trump. I mean, I keep forgetting. It's like I think of you as like there must be other. Norm- She's smart, though, that aunt.
3: Yeah, yeah. And I'm also not suggesting I'm normal either, but definitely uh, wired differently. Miriam. Smart. She's actually quite funny, but she's like a, um, a- in certain regards, a pale imitation of Donald. Like, she tries mightily to do the self-aggrandizement thing, but it's always with a tinge of self-consciousness and insecurity.
1: See, that that's totally off-brand for Donald. Right. There's never any self-consciousness.
3: Exactly, which is what makes it so uncomfortable. Did she
5: explain to you why she retired as a federal court judge last year? Uh, it was quite curious timing because that retirement ended a court inquiry into her role in the family tax dodges.
3: That's why she retired retired because if she did retire, the inquiry would stop because only do an inquiry into an active judge and she would retain her pension, which she really needed. Uh, That was sarcasm. I I, I, was going to
2: say, I was about to follow up on that and be like, wait, what? Ivanka and Junior, they can't possibly be the future of the Republican Party. Well, this Republican Party.
1: (laughs) Molly, (laughs) Molly, Molly and Mary, Uh, let me step in as the (laughs) Republican whisperer here. Not only can they be, but I believe that the ticket of Tucker Carlson as VP and Don Jr. as president will almost certainly appear on the horizon in 2024.
2: Don't say stuff like that.
1: At that point, we should enjoy it because it's going to be more comical than terrifying. How much interaction did you ever have with Jared? um.
3: (laughs) (laughs) The boy wonder. None. I didn't even see them at their wedding because there were like a million people there. And it was their wedding. It's not really the time to say, hi, I haven't seen you any Years because I was disinherited and we sued everybody. It didn't feel comfortable. And at the White House, neither one of them approached me. And I felt like I was the guest in a very awkward situation. So I wasn't approaching anybody. So yeah, that never happened. So it's...
1: You know, as a professional in the mental health field, you really missed the opportunity to interview America's first vice presidential android American.
2: (laughs) I thought that was Mark Zuckerberg. (laughs)
3: Look,
1: I think they came, both came off the same flawed assembly line.
2: <laughs> you talk about the idea of, like, Trump being actually institutionalized in the White House, which I think is so interesting. Can you just talk a little bit more about that? Because a lot of the book is this insights into his psychological life and the world that created him.
3: Mm-hmm. It just makes sense to me because, you know, it starts in the House. And when Donald finally was chosen... To be the heir apparent when he was probably still in high school, he was protected at every turn by my grandfather from his incompetence, from his total inability to handle money. And he never had to fend for himself. He never had to admit when he was wrong. And then he was in my grandfather's company. And then the Trump organization was set up, which I think it was like a sinecure, honestly. And then it wasn't just my grandfather, it was all these other entities coming forward, the media the banks to keep propping him up and protecting him and letting him fail up consistently and constantly until the Republican Party started doing the same thing. And I imagine the White House to be the kind of place where, you know, the person in his position has every need attended to, every want attended to, 24 hours a day, and is never told no. I mean, good presidents, well, I don't consider him the president, but like, you know, I'm sure Barack Obama or even George W. Bush would maybe seek it out sometimes, you know, give me an honest critique of this. Donald would never do that. And if somebody did question him, that person would be fired and humiliated. So he doesn't have to do anything. I can't think of any way to be more institutionalized, except. To be on a psych ward
1: it's not out of the question no
3: it's not and in fact honestly it would be better for him and it would be better for us
1: you know knowing the way the white house works here i think your analysis is very on point because it is a controlled environment. It is a place where the ease of traveling and moving around is, there's a lot of friction to him causing tr- as more trouble than he than he would probably be inclined to cause otherwise. And even though the the, the staff at the White House as of now are the bunch of most obsequious lick to ever hold office there, even they can't let the monster run around all the time.
3: Right. I didn't know there was a list Love the z list, but here we are when i was writing the book i was in, in thinking about this issue i was trying to imagine imagine donald okay in astoria queens living in a studio apartment having to go out and get a job and support. <laughs> i'm serious like how would that work he no other company would not have fired him was that like a triple negative that i just pulled there any company would have fired him for his behavior except apparently the united states of america <laughs> It's
5: not that it's that important. Mary, how I caught on to the, the fact you were working on a book project was through my reporting a year ago on, uh, on David Barstow and how he employed the New York Times tax team uh, in his relentless pursuit of you wanting to ghostwrite your book, obviously seeing that be a massive payday. And you were a key confidential source for the Times so at the time, but yet he showed up at your house and announced, he bombarded you with calls and texts. What was that experience like? I noticed that he wasn't given a shout out in the uh, the credits where Suzanne Craig and Ross <laughs> Kutner, the other Times reporters were.
3: No, and I refused to mention his name in conjunction with that article because his behavior afterwards was so unethical and unprofessional. It's kind of mind blowing. Yeah, Laughlin and I go way back. Although you didn't know who I was for until recently, right?
5: That's correct. Yeah, I, I thought it was either Marianne or Elizabeth up until around Christmas time.
3: Right. So yeah, I was starting to feel like, you know, my, my role in life was just to be a confidential anonymous source. <laughs> it was really just heartening that you were so on that story because nobody else cared. And it was awful because I really had liked David and I thought he was a good guy. And it just felt like when I finally figured out what was going on, I had been set up from day one. I felt like such a rube, you know? It took took a while for me to, to let that go because he was so persistent and so indifferent to the effect on me, but also completely incapable of seeing what he was doing. Or maybe he saw it, but just didn't care. You know, just completely used Using me to his own ends and using his agent and stuff like that. It's a very long story for another time, Lachlan. You'll you'll get the exclusive on that one. But
5: you know I like a good exclusive. But David obviously knew that this book was going to sell like hotcakes, and it has. It's set you know records, and you're you're on your 14th print run now, which makes me wonder: Are you interested? Are you, are you interested in writing more books? I mean, are there other Trump? any secrets still to be had?
3: Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I initially wanted this book to be more about my dad, and it's turned out not to be for a lot of reasons. So, I, yeah, I absolutely. And not just about the family. I have a lot of other things. I actually started out in life wanting to be a novelist, so that would be... I'm
2: sorry. I say this as a recovering novelist, but you certainly could be. I mean, you're a really good writer.
1: You really are. So, Mary, let me ask you this question. Where does all the various Trump litigation stand? And are we done now in terms of them trying to litigate against you? Obviously, their their prior restraint didn't work out too well, but are they litigating with you on any other fronts?
3: I don't know. I think perhaps after he tweeted about me, they hired a team of people to sit on him because <laughs> <laughs> that was probably ill advised. I don't think it makes me look bad to say my grandparents couldn't stand me, but, or that I was, uh, what was it? Seldom seen. Like, you're my uncle. <laughs> anyway, yes. I mean, it's ridiculous. He's my uncle. I grew up with it. Ridiculous. So, in terms of forthcoming litigation, I don't know. I mean, there is, I suppose, a possibility that they could sue me for damages because I'm, I'm not entirely sure if that issue was resolved in the last ruling. But, because all I'm really concerned about right now is what happening right now. And if they want to sue me, you know, it would, it hopefully won't happen. If they did, I think the chances that they would get damages are exceedingly unlikely.
1: Yeah, but he does, he engages in a lot of like legal terrorism with people over the years. I mean, so when you were writing this, did you think about how, how litigious from that Roy Cohn DNA that this guy could have been? Oh yeah.
3: I knew they were going to sue me. I you know, I didn't know what form it would take. Of course, I knew about the settlement agreement. I also knew that it wasn't going to hold up because it's, Poorly executed. But yeah, this is really important. Until January 20th, 2017, he had never been held accountable or had to compromise or negotiate. And until now, he'd always had more money, more lawyers, more time to wait out the other person. And then he finds out probably much to his horror, or at least to Charles Harder's horror, that I've got Ted Boutros and Annie Champion and basically, first (laughs) of all, yeah, they're extraordinary lawyers, but they're just amazing people. It's just been incredible. And, you know, this has been going on for two years and they've been with me every step of the way and they're not going anywhere.
1: Well, that's a good squad to have on your side in this thing. Yeah. I keep going back to Fred because, like I said, I keep thinking Fred is like the supervillain origin story of Donald in a lot of ways. One of those persistent things from that one article uh, from the New York, I guess it's the Daily News, back in the 30s was that Fred had gone to a Klan rally and that he had been a, either a participant in or or had been arrested at the clan rally somehow I'm gonna guess Fred wasn't there fighting for social justice and black lives matter are you sure did you ever hear anything about the famous incident where your grandfather was arrested at a clan rally did you ever hear anything about that in the family
3: Wait honestly that story surprised me not because my grandfather was an anti-semitic he was but because he would spend time doing something other than making money. <laughs> I'm totally serious. Like, he went to a Klan rally? In what free time? <laughs> like, he's just perfectly happy being racist and anti Semitic in his own house and his place of work. I mean, he's... <laughs>
1: in some ways, that's just so much worse. It is,
3: actually. Exactly. <laughs> Which is, you know, what does that say about
1: us? Right. It's like our capacity for horror has been diminished. Oh
2: man. But it is so brave. I mean, being the source for that New York Times piece, were you like freaked out by it at all?
3: No. And so many people have asked me some version of that question. I'm beginning to feel like I should be. No, I mean,
2: I mean, I guess if I if Trump were my uncle, I would do it. It makes sense with the book. Sometimes, like these far right people will be like, Well, why did you do it now? And I'm like, because she doesn't want him to get reelected because he's ruining the world. It's so clear to me the motivation, but I'm just curious. Like you weren't at all.
3: Uh, no. One of the hardest things about 2016 was knowing there was nothing I could do. You know, I wanted to do something. I didn't have proof of anything. I didn't even remember about the documents. I just would have been just this disinherited, bitter, wanting her 50 minutes, whatever he said, she said, and that was very hard to take. So when I was finally given an opportunity to do something. And actually, initially it was really amorphous. It was like, okay, here's your 40,000 pages of documents. I don't know what's in them. You don't know what's in them. Hopefully it helps. And then it ends up being this just extraordinary piece of investigative journalism. I finally felt like, okay, I've done something and it became apparent quite quickly. It wasn't enough. So that's when the book started shaping up
5: right you've encountered some pretty uh, insane legal threats uh, mary has it gone any any more extreme than that have you ex- experienced death threats
3: no but not yet <laughs> 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 um it seems like everybody gets death threats these days i'm beginning to feel left out
2: rick gets really bad ones
3: <laughs> yeah i'm sure. but- A couple of days ago, I got a text on my personal phone from somebody just saying, how dare I, I own 16 properties. I'm like, really, where are they? (laughs) And it wasn't any, it was just like something I would see on Twitter, but it was on my phone, which is a drag. And then somebody actually nail mailed me a card that it was like a (laughs) Hallmark card that on the front of it just said, oh shit, 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 shit. And you open up and it says, you're a piece of shit.
1: Oh, God. It's probably from Eric, and Eric is going to say, Daddy, do you love me now?
5: Was that signed Donald Trump? What if it's from Eric?
3: Mm -hmm. It was actually from Santa Clara, California or something. So and it was, you know, your dad's a loser. You should have been a billionaire. I mean, again, it wasn't a threat, but it came to my house. So that was a little weird, but I have security.
1: I'm glad you have security because there are people in this world on the, in 30 years of politics, I never had a serious death threat from a Democrat. I get them all the time now from people who are like, I will cut off your head and shit on your grave and blah, 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 and put a manga hat on it. You know, ooh. okay, thanks. Don't, don't ever take that stuff too lightly, though.
3: No, no, I don't. At- I have a kid, so I'm not in New York right now, so the security's staying with her wherever she is because, no, these people are insane.
2: So my question for you, and I come from a family with a lot of alcoholism, and I'm sober a long time, so there's been a lot of talk of Trump as, like, a dry drunk and that there's alcoholism. How do you think alcoholism plays into this?
3: Well, yeah, it, in my family, there's a strong genetic component. I think one of my grandmother's brothers, Died from alcoholism. One of my dad's first cousins, Malcolm, who was a very, very sweet man, died in his fifties from drinking. So it's very present. But with Donald, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't think he's a dried drunk necessarily. I think his issue, and this might sound ridiculous, and and again, I don't know anything about the drugs in the eighties. Other people can speculate about that. One of Donald's problems is that my grandfather was one of those very rare people who needed like four hours of sleep and had tons of energy to burn for the rest. Of the twenty hours, it was so in my family. Just like being kind was weak, or being wrong was weak. So is needing to sleep like a normal human (laughs) being. I'm not kidding. I think that's why Donald doesn't sleep because Daddy wouldn't approve. So that's maybe why he drinks twelve Diet Cokes a day and is up until three in the morning tweeting, and then up at six o'clock in the morning tweeting. It's so unhealthy, both physically and psychologically, not to get enough sleep. And I don't think he ever has in his life.
1: Your description of his various. mythologies in the book, there's so much observable data. You could break apart any of the things you mentioned about him, learning disability. The guy can barely stand there in front of the teleprompter and grunt out words. There's so many things in in that from your professional perspective that I think give this book a layer of granularity and context that, I mean, I'm really glad that you put your professional skills to work on some of that analytical assessment of him. Because if they rolled him into a psych ward, I think you would probably immediately pack him off
3: yeah. Well, it's too late for him, unfortunately. And the people who are closest to him do- clearly don't care. But I was really, I appreciate that because I've been out of the field for a really long time. Obviously, I have the training and I, I taught grad school and I've seen lots of patients, but it's been a been a while. So... To hear people see value in my analyses and uh, to hear other psychologists and psychoanalysts sort of nodding and saying, yeah, that's spot on, that's pretty cool, I have to say. I feel like in some ways that's the most important point.
1: Validation.
3: Yeah, well, but also it's, to me, it was one of the most important aspects of the book. And if I had gotten that wrong, it would have been a disaster.
4: Mm-hmm.
5: Right, mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. that's true.
5: I just think that the success of this is just being phenomenal. It really is like a cultural moment, I think, out of all of these books. And, uh, you know, I think people want you to keep writing them. So...
3: What are we going to do when this is all calmed down, Lachlan? What are we going to do? We're going to have several bevies. We'll be rested, tan,
5: ready to get going. (laughs) Drinking a lot. Exactly. Mary, while we've got you, just lastly, can I just jump in and just say, uh, in Trump's tweet on Friday about you, he did highlight your NDA and saying that you violated it. And there is a pattern here where Trump puts people that work for him under NDA and, you know, it happened at the Trump organization. It happens down the White House. Do you think these NDAs should be ruled invalid and non-binding? Because we keep seeing them being used to cover for fraud in your case. And in fact, in other cases like Karen McDougal and Michael Cohen for criminal activity.
3: Oh my gosh, absolutely. In fact, I think it should be a requirement if you want to run for president, all of your NDAs get invalidated. I mean,
5: with the judge when he lifted your gag order actually ruled con law Trump's contracts?
2: Yep. Yeah.
1: Right. Oh, Mary, thank you so much for thank today. Thank you so I much, Mary. So
0: this
2: is great
5: .com/thenewabnormal
1: Support troublemakers like us who speak truth to power. Believe it or not, your actions speak louder than our words and our superegos can get very loud. Visit newabnormal.thedailybeast.com to sign up and become a beast inside member.
2: And we're so excited today to have Ellie Mistal. He's the justice correspondent at The Nation and one of our favorite Twitter personalities. Ellie You just wrote a piece about John Lewis for The Nation. Can you talk to us about what John Lewis meant to you as a journalist.
6: You know, one of the things that really hit me when he passed away, you know, he had been sick for a while, so it wasn't a complete shock. But one of the things that really hit me when he passed away was just the dripping imposter syndrome that I have and I think a lot of people in my generation have. What we're losing when when people like Lewis passed away and C.T. Vivian on the same day and Elijah Cummings not too long ago, we're losing that greatest black generation that generation that has kind of direct living memory of the fight for civil rights my mom is almost 70 she was born 1950 in segregated mississippi she met dr martin luther king at her house when she was a kid because he was around people's houses back then right like he was you know my grandmother was a school teacher and he was you know making the rounds in mississippi and checking out the schools right so like that living connection to the struggle is passing away and as As those elders pass away, it then becomes my generation. I'm using generation kind of expansively, but like it becomes fundamentally people my age. I'm 42, people in their 50s and 40s are now to be the next elders, to be the next kind of leaders or at least the keepers of memory. And I have an imposter syndrome feeling of I'm not personally, you know, I don't know that I have the the bona fides to be an elder. I certainly don't have the experience to be an elder. I didn't march across no bridge. I went to Harvard, right? people like my mom, like John Lewis, like Elijah Conley, their sacrifices were so I didn't have to worry about. So I could just, you know, go to Harvard and read Plato instead of having to go out there and fight in the streets for my basic dignity, right? So losing that kind of direct connection, that living memory of what it was like and what it takes to fight white supremacy is a hole, is a hole in our community, hole in the black community, hole in our national community
1: that we now have to fill. I mean, generationally speaking, I think what you said was very compelling because at the same time we're losing that understanding of what the civil rights movement in the 1960s, 50s and 60s actually entailed. I think we're losing them at an incredibly inopportune moment where the Trump side of this equation and his followers have very much weaponized the idea that brown people are coming to kill you, they're not like you, they're going to take your suburb away, they're going to take your job, your safety. It's this recapitulation of stuff that was dead and gone in some ways as part of our political discourse and he has opened this fucking time machine on it, and it's terrifying.
6: The saddest thing for me with the Trump administration, like my mom lives with me, she has a mother-in-law suite, the saddest thing has been watching the news on Sunday with her, and hearing her say things, I thought we defeated these people, I thought things were better, I thought that not only that you wouldn't have to fight, I thought that you might have to fight some of these battles, but I thought that my grandkids would never have to fight these battles, and watching her kind of see, had to wait outside the library for some white man to go check out a book for her. That's where she started, and for her to be here now with all of that Success and victory, and yet to have to see the retrenchment and the and the counterattack of white supremacy, and she looks at me, and again, you know, we're, we're watching, we're watching Joy Reid, we're watching, you know, the news. She knows that you know, sees me on TV, and she's like, "Can't you do something?" That's easily been the most painful part of this era. But I will say to try to kind of upswing it a bit, my generation has its own problem. We're a smaller generation than the ones that preceded us, and the ones that are succeeding us. And the thing that Trump is doing that the Republicans are doing that I don't think they fully priced in is that they are now forging an entirely new generation of fighters and heroes who are on the come up. And what they have done to these kids, the, what they have exposed these kids to and what these kids are going to be willing to do to fight them going forward, I don't think people in the Trump administration have fully internalized what they are setting themselves up for in the future.
1: They've activated a generation of people under 30 who look at Trump and Trumpism and Republicanism now. They see the two sides in Portland. They see the two sides in Minneapolis. And they're not going to stand with those people. It is a generational neutron bomb for the Republican Party.
2: And by the way, good. That's good. There is a huge discrepancy in health care for African-Americans, life expectancy, infant mortality. African-Americans are not getting the same kind of medical care that white people are. And even John Lewis and Elijah Cummings. Elijah Cummings was like 68 or something. So can you talk a little bit about that struggle?
6: Well, part of it is just that it's hard to live around all these white people, right? Like racism doesn't have a cost to one's health, right? Even beyond the disparity in medical care that you're bringing up, Molly, there are studies after studies that show that black people are more prone to hypertension, heart disease, issues involving stress. And what is that stress? That stress is trying to live and breathe and work in a predominantly white society. I like to point out that like my experience as an African-American trying to drive my car to the store is completely different than your experience as a white American trying to do the same, right? That is a stressful endeavor for me at times. You know, I, I like to joke about, you know, you see, when you see these videos of these thrill seekers, you know, the, the white people are just climbing mountains or like driving their bikes off a cliff with a GoPro on their, man, you never see black people doing that. If we want a thrill, <laughs> we just have to go out in the street and try to defend our rights in front of a cop. That's a thrill for an African
1: American, right? Sure. I guess one thing also about this generation passing, the confidence you have in a new generation of leaders rising up, I think is very well put. I think there is a generation that's going to be sensitized to the fact that the civil rights struggle when it comes down to justice reform, I think is, may not be the whole thing, but I think it's kind of the central inflection point right now because people are seeing it every day play out on the streets, and they're just seeing it every damn day.
2: Can you talk to us a little bit about RBG? Do
6: I have to? Because that's just the fear that I have. (laughs) The fate of the republic should not rest on the the shoulders of an 87-year-old umpteen-time cancer survivor, right? Like that is not what the framers intended, I, I believe. So one of the things that we have to learn from the RGB experience, is that having so much of our policy depend on the beggaries of death of very, very old people on the Supreme Court is ludicrous. There's got to be a way to stop that. I have a few ideas that we can talk about, but like that's the number one takeaway has to be this can never happen again.
1: I think we all know that the number one thing Donald Trump's campaign wakes up every morning and wants is for her to pass. This would turn this election in, with their base into a single subject election. It would turn into a Washington, D.C. show they would nominate some federal Society guy in a hot second.
2: No, the woman, that scary Amy Barrett.
1: Amy Cunningham Barrett. They look at this as, and I cannot express to you enough how much that my former Republican colleagues are, every time they see her pop up on a Google alert, they rub their hands together like crazy people, like movie villains.
6: They're so desperate to have an open seat to campaign on, they're trying to push Clarence Thomas out. Right? <laughs> it's true. Who doesn't want to go? <laughs> Clarence Thomas loves his job, and he's in the majority now. He doesn't want to go anywhere. But they're trying to push him out to get a seat. But Rick, let's talk about this. Why is that? And when you look at it, what you see is that Republicans have done an excellent job over the past 30 or 40 years of explaining to their voters how important in the Supreme Court is. Look, I do not believe.
2: Yeah, why haven't Democrats done that?
6: I do not believe that the average kind of baseline Republican voter is any smarter than your average baseline Democratic vote, right? But Republicans have made the one-to-one connection to these voters, right? You want your guns? It's about the Supreme Court. You want to stop them queers from kissing? It's about the Supreme Court. You want to stop these women from having rights? It's about the Supreme Court. They don't know what the Supreme, the Republican voters don't know what the Supreme Court does or any of these kind of like complicated legal theories of interpretation. They just know that if they want their culture war victories, they have to win at the Supreme Court. Democratic voters don't know that. That is a failure of the Democratic Party. That is a big, hawking, dripping failure of the Democratic Party for the past 40 years.
2: You sound a lot like Rick Wilson.
1: <laughs> the thing about Republicans' understanding of the Supreme Court message is very simple.
6: When Republicans have the control, when the fellow society is in charge of appointments, the kinds of judges they appoint are these kind of radical standard bearers for the right-wing movement. When liberals have control, the kind of judges they appoint tend to be fundamentally centrist. We don't come out of the gate with our heroes, with our liberal kind of liberal crazy people to combat the conservative crazy people. We try to play the center. One of the analogies that I've made is that if you've got a seesaw and on one side there's an elephant, the way to balance that seesaw is not to put a donkey in the middle of the seesaw. It's just going to slide towards the elephant, right? You need to put your Own elephant on the other side of the seesaw, that's how you get balance. And Democrats don't understand that when it comes to nominating Supreme Court justices. So that if you look at Obama's appointments, three attempted appointments, Kagan is fundamentally a centrist. Merrick Garland fundamentally would have been a centrist. Sonia Sotomayor, who has turned out to be quite liberal, did not play that way when she was trying to get the job. I don't want to say Obama got fooled, but Sonia Sotomayor has been way more liberal on the court than her second circuit opinions would have suggested she was going to be.
1: the secrets, though, of the Federalist Society, this long march that Leonard Leo has engineered, was not just that they picked out guys that were going to like checkbox, all the ideological things. They also looked for people who could be influential inside bodies like circuit courts and the Supreme Court. They looked for people who could be operators as well as jurists. And that, you know, whether you love them or hate them, that is brilliant strategic thinking, where the Democrats have never had anything even vaguely comparable to that.
6: Going to Harvard Law School, you know, one of the things that I learned is that how brilliant the Federalist Society is at identifying people when they're young. Trust me, if I had given any, and I went to a law school from 2000, 2003, if I had given any indication that I was conservative, right, that I was gonna be a black conservative jurist, they would have plucked me out as a one L, marshaled me through my entire career so that I would have been in a position to be a federal judge when Trump won and would now be on some kind of fast track, short track for Clarence Thomas's seat. They would have done that. They would have identified me as a 22 year old, right? right. <laughs> Democrats have nothing comparative, nothing on the scale of operation of even identifying their young stars and helping them throughout their career. Democrats are 40 years behind on this project.
1: I've counseled Democrats a lot who bitch about the Federalist Society. I'm like, okay, you can complain about it all day long. It's not gonna change the fact that it exists and it's done what it's done. Why don't you do something similar? And it's always like, well, because we're, well, but that's, uh, (laughs) right? Are, are, you not, are you not in politics?
6: <laughs> it's not even that expensive. Federal society's got a endowment of what, like 25, 30 oh, million well, dollars? Yeah. So we're screwed. So my solution <laughs> is court packing, right? So, that, And I come to the conclusion that the only real way of fixing it is court packing. The number of Supreme Court justices is not set by the Constitution. When we started, it was six. Then at pre-Civil War, we were up to 10. It was only with the Judiciary Act of 1868 that we got to this number of nine. Nine holds no special numerical significance. I have an argument that the court would function better if it had more justices, like 19 justices, as opposed to nine or even like 11 or 12. And the reason why, look at how all the circuit courts operate, right? They operate with many more justices than the Supreme Court. California, uh, the Ninth Circuit has, I think, 21 justices. They operate on three judge panels, which are chosen at random. The randomness gives it more of a sense of impartiality, by the way. Only really important cases are bumped up to unbanked, which is the full circuit. If you had 19 justices, the death or retirement of any one justice would not matter as much. It just wouldn't. That wouldn't change the power of the Supreme Court, but it would change the power of any individual justice. One of 19 is a completely different kind of political football than one of nine. There are, quite honestly, very few opinions, I believe, at the Supreme Court level that would break down 10 9 on partisan issues so cleanly, right? Because cases are complicated. We saw even with this term, you had that one case where Gorsuch kind of flipped and went with liberals on Bostock, right? You had Roberts kind of playing both sides. That's not because Gorsuch or Roberts are rhinos in any sense, right? It's because the law is complicated. It's because even an ideologue will have certain pet issues that they like or they care about or they don't like or they don't care about, right? If you have 19 even complete ideologues kind of fighting over these very difficult and complicated legal issues, The chances of them kind of all kind of circling their wagons and party lining on a 10-9 situation, I'm not saying it would never happen. It would just be way more rare than the 5-4 kind of decisions we see regularly out of the Supreme Court. We would have a better Supreme Court if we had more justices. And then you deal with the Merrick Garland, it also gives the Democrats something to to shoot for.
1: And by the way, the way you sell this to Trump is you tell him it's the greatest reality show of all time. A Uh 19-person Supreme Court. (laughs) Leave it to Rick to take an elevated discussion to something completely shallow and media related. (laughs) I liked it.
2: Let us go now to our one segment. The
1: one segment you've all been waiting for. The segment you know and love. The only
2: segment
1: we have. We need like a trumpet flourish before this or something. That's
2: right. Some music. All right. Rick Wilson, who's your fuck that
1: guy? My fuck that guy is acting temporary provisional, sort of kind of pseudo (laughs) secretary of homeland security, Chad Wolf, who was out this Uh, weekend in Portland, Oregon, declaring his billion gajillion dollar federal agency would be bringing the full might and force and power of the federal government down on a bunch of fucking teenagers with spray paint and fireworks as he seeks to stomp out the he's decided to marshal the full resources of his multi-billion gajillion dollar agency to defeat the armed communist insurrection of Antifa. General, you're on our list for this week's Fuck That Guy. You don't get a lovely parting gift. Hey, Mary, thanks for being our special guest. The first time anyone else has done Fuck That Guy, Um, who is your Fuck That Guy for today?
3: There's so many choices. And I would say because of the lawsuit to make it illegal for people not to die in Georgia, I might have said Kemp, but I think more currently because that's been ongoing and it's not going to stop. You know, Betsy DeVos, who apparently wants to kill our children.
2: (laughs) what a monster
1: she really is she really is Uh,
2: can i do ken cuccinelli the cooch acting provisional temporary secretary of internet shopping ken cuccinelli who is the homeland security director sort of and spends much of his time trying to stop I don't know what he does, but he does a lot of racism.
1: Brown people. Got
2: a lot of racism. He's looking for a caravan. Uh, he's my fuck that guy of the week. Though I will say Greg Abbott, Texas governor, right? Letting border towns get overrun with COVID. He's, he could qualify.
1: Speaking of Texas, did you hear that former congressional candidate, former Florida resident and full-time lunatic Alan West has now been named the head of the Republican Party of Texas?
2: I'm going to need a little deep background here, Rick Wilson.
1: Alan West is so crazy that the craziest Trump people sometimes say, Alan, dial it back like to six or four maybe. Okay.
2: Who is Alan West? We need
1: the full. Alan West is a former lieutenant colonel in the United States Army. He moved to Florida. He ran for Congress. He won a congressional seat. He was so hated by every Republican in Florida that they redistricted him out of his own seat. (laughs) And then he moved to Texas. Tea Party, like superstar for a while. Then he moved to Texas a few years ago. And now he's the head of the Republican Party of Texas. So Beto O'Rourke couldn't turn Texas blue, but Alan West sure might. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, we'll wrap up this episode of the new abnormal from the Daily Beast. In future episodes, we'll be talking with smart folks from the Daily Beast and beyond from media, culture, politics, and science, who will help us understand what's happening to our country